0: Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, Senior Pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: Well, let's see your Bibles if you have them there. So great to bring a copy of the Word of God into the house of God to hear a message from the Man of God, and turn to Ecclesiastes in your Bible there. And if you're here and you do not have a Bible, uh, see me after the service. I'd love to give you a Bible. On Sunday mornings, we've been preaching using the English Standard Version, and then Sunday nights and Wednesday nights during those studies, I'm still using the New King James Version, uh, but uh, we're using ESV here on the Sunday mornings. And as you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Uh, I want to reveal how nerdy I am. One of the things I've greatly enjoyed over the years is watching old movies. And I'm talking about old movies. One of my favorite British actors from those early days of movies was Charles Lawton. I mean, the guy died in 1962, and I was born in 1967. So that shows you how old these movies are. And he was a real character. One of my favorite movies he's in is Hobson's Choice. If you ever get a chance to watch that, it's a great movie. But there's a story from when Charles Lawton attended a Christmas party in London. And the host of the party decided that each person in attendance should recite or uh, read a favorite passage that most reminded them of the spirit of Christmas. And so each person went. And finally, Lawton's turn came. And he recited in his beautifully trained voice, that great British voice, Psalm 23. And when he was done, everyone in the room applauded. I mean, they just went, oh my goodness, what a great thing to get to hear. Well, the process continued and they got toward the end and everyone had participated except a, a dear elderly aunt who had dozed off in the corner and she was greatly loved and so they gently woke her and they explained to her what was going on and they asked her to take part in what they were doing and she thought for a moment and then began in a shaky voice also reciting Psalm 23 not knowing that Lawton had already recited it so she said the Lord is my shepherd And she went all the way through it. I I shall not want. And she went all the way through. And when she was done, the room was hushed. And when she finished, there were tears dripping down every face in the room. Well, the time came for everyone to leave and as they were leaving one of the younger members of the family thanked Charles Lawton for coming and remarked about the incredibly different responses there were to the same uh recitation of Psalm 23. And the young man asked Lawton he said, "How do you account for the difference?" Would you like to know how Charles Lawton responded accounting for the difference? Oh yeah, sure you'd want to know. I'm I'll tell you at the end of the service. <laughs> but first, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been so honest with us about uh, life on earth now, under the sun, here on earth, how hard it is and how frustrating. And yet, say and yet, and yet, for the believer, Solomon goes into time and again how there can be a sense of God's purpose and presence and joy now, despite the hard things we faced, and and the best is yet to come. That God will indeed make everything beautiful in His perfect timing and today we're gonna to see solomon teach that one of my favorite ways one of the most memorable uh... in chapter eight here one of the most memorable little ways of talking about life to come and how it will be well for it will go well for believers and it will not go well for unbelievers is stated right here in ecclesiastes eight And so he's also in the middle of that uh, gonna give us some advice on when we have to deal with blockheads in our lives Authority figures that are bad at what they do and make life hard for us here under the sun. So hopefully by now we've got your attention with that. Let's read chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. His countenance is changed. Maybe your translation reads... I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I obey, observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity or emptiness. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. I just want to read that again. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, say yet I know, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear, they revere him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the works of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Living in two realms at the same time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... The words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you so much for how he is so honest with us about how hard life can be under the sun, how frustrating, so much emptiness apart from you. And Lord, even for those that know you, we face some of the same adversities and struggles that others face in the world, and then we also face the ridicule and scorn of those who reject you and mock those who love you and fear you, God. Lord, thank you for how honest Solomon has been about those things, but how he has gently and not so gently pointed us to the fact that there is a God who we can know. There is a God who wants to know us, that has a beautiful plan for our lives, that wants us to experience the time and a place for everything that you have for us, God. And we thank you that you, God, make everything beautiful in its time. Thank you, for the hints, even in Ecclesiastes, of the life after this life, Lord. And so, Lord, you have called us to live in two realms at the same time. With our desire to finish well and to focus well, we are left in two realms at the same time. For the believer, there's already the knowledge that one day will be with you. There's the present joy that comes from having your perspective in this world. But there's also the hard realities here under the sun. The breaking down of the vehicles that we rely on. The uh, frustration in relationships that have to be worked through and worked out. Lord God, the times of inflation and other things that make the dollar not go so far, Lord. So much that's hard in this life. And yet we thank you for your presence in it, Lord. Your presence with us in the now and the eternal life to come. And so, Lord, as in Ecclesiastes 8... Solomon talks about glowing but also serving under bad authorities Lord God we thank you that he gives this perspective that the best is yet to come Christ's name we pray amen well I don't know if you've been carefully trying to track the themes as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes we're in chapter eight and by now there's at least four themes that Solomon has gone into again and again and we see them again here in this chapter on earth now sin affects every person in every place all the time do you know that already in your life that sin affects things uh... not only your own sin but the sins of others toward you and sin in the world has made this world a place of sorrow and suffering Uh, But there is a God we can turn to who has a beautiful plan for our lives. I think about Ecclesiastes 3. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And despite the hardships of this life, uh, God has set eternity in our hearts. We know there's more, and it is knowing Him and being with Him. And it is good to know Him, to fear Him, to revere Him. We've also seen that indeed one day every person will stand before God in judgment. And so everyone needs to turn to Him before it's too late. And so, uh, man, can you imagine the double sorrow of those that did not turn to God now and then spend eternity in hell, uh, never knowing eternal life, never knowing the purpose and plan God had, never knowing his presence and joy. And we've seen that those who have faith in God already are called to experience his presence and joy no matter how difficult the days they face are. And... So, uh, all those themes are also present here in chapter 8. You may have heard them when I read. We started in chapter 7. The second part of Ecclesiastes was saying we want to finish well. We want to have a good name at the end of the day. And people say the right kind of things about us. More importantly, to have God say the right kinds of things about us as his child and one who sought him, feared him, revered him. And so, then we talked about focusing well so we can finish well. And if you do that... Chapter 7, verse 29 says, This alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. But if we focus well so we can finish well, our face will glow. And that's what the first verse of chapter 8 says living with an increasing glow. Solomon says after that great chapter 7 Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of the things? A man's wisdom or a woman's wisdom makes his or her face shine. And the hardness of their face is changed. Their countenance is changed. Their very facial expression changes. Solomon makes clear that the wise person who reveres God, who does the will of God, their face will shine. Their countenance will be changed away from what it was. Now, one of my favorite things about being a pastor all these years is how I've seen that happen so many times. Somebody that I first talked to, And they were caught up in alcoholism, or they were caught up in sexual sin, or they were caught up in this or that. They had just no joy in their eyes. There was emptiness there. And I don't know if you remember the heavy metal album covers of the 70s or 80s, but they did a great job on those album covers painting people, and they'd show their eyes. And in those eyes, you saw emptiness for miles and miles. And when I looked in the mirror before I knew Christ, back at the age of 17 in those high school years, I really related to those album covers because that's what there was emptiness emptiness as far as you could see into my eyes and there was a hardness of facial features there was not joy on my face and I've seen that in so many others over the years and then they hear about Jesus they hear about forgiveness of sins they hear about peace with God and they turn to him and all of a sudden instantly you almost see that expression changed from the hardness of life and the frustration and the sorrow to tears of joy and a different countenance forever. It happened to me. I put my picture on the back of your notes there. So if it were not, it's not going to go up on the screen here. But if you've got the notes, turn them over. And that's me as a senior in high school a couple months before I became a Christian. Do you see the lostness in those eyes? Do you see the anger? Do you see the hurt? Do you see the pain there? It's all there. I look at that. Photo, and I don't even recognize that guy because on December sixteenth, nineteen eighty four, just a couple months later, a friend invited me to church, and I heard about Jesus. I, I I was saved. I was forgiven of sin, and almost instantly there was joy in my face where there hadn't been, and there was this, and this has never left. In fact, one of the things people have commented the most about me over the years is, look at that joy. Look at that smile and I think about the song that says the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away it stays there no matter what because Jesus put it there he's the one that can change that countenance he's the one that can bring that glow he is the master of helping us glow and grow because of what he's doing in our lives you know we don't need to growl and scowl because in him we can glow and we can grow And the same thing can happen to you this very day. No no matter your hurts, no matter your struggles, no matter your pain, no matter the mess you've made of your own lives, we've got new names and faces this time around, but gospel changes are still going down. And you might be the next one today because he's like that. And God is so good. You know, there are all kinds of religions around the world where they have degrees of things. You start in at a first degree, and if you then uh, progress through the religion, you progress up the degrees, and all of a sudden, you, 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 there's, you know, those ones are high. They're monks, and they're, they're this up here, and you're still down here. But that's not Christianity. The moment you're saved by God's grace, guess what? You've got everything inside you and before you that Billy Graham had when he was saved the same Bible to read, the same ability to humble yourself and pray, the same ability to gather with other believers and start developing relationships that are godly. And as you do, over the years, there's this glow, this beautiful glow. Don't forget this verse is just after that important verse at the end of chapter 7. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. And so the person who's been listening to Solomon up to this point, hopefully has now decided to revere God and do what he says. And if if you and I do that, when we do that, we're going to see something happen as the years pass on earth. As you have a relationship with Christ, as you grow in him, your face is more and more going to glow. (laughs) I'll tell you what. As much as I've enjoyed over the years seeing that countenance first change and a person go from being lost to being saved, that moment of new birth and the transformation happens, I have so also enjoyed over the years knowing and interacting with senior saints who love the Lord and have been seeking Him for decades and sometimes when they come in the church, there's just this glow, isn't there? You know? Now, they've had all the hard things to face in life that you're going to have. And yet, over the years, they've made decisions to honor and glorify Christ. And as they've done that consistently, as they've walked with Him, it's like Moses coming down from the mountain, right? He had, they had to put a veil on his face because he glowed in some of our dear saints that have spent hours in prayer with Jesus that have spent hours seeking his face in Bible study, that have poured into others their entire life through sacrifices. And I can look out and see some of those faces now. And I remember one of my joys over the year, going all the way back to when I was a teenager or came to know Christ, was interacting with some of those people and them telling me how much they loved Jesus and how encouraging they were. Then going to Bryan College and seeing professors like that too. And they'd have me into their homes and they'd interact with me and they'd pour into me. And that glow is there. Solomon says a man's wisdom makes his face shine. It makes her face shine for the saintly lady. And the hardness of their face is changed. Daniel twelve three says it like this, talking about the end times. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Isn't that great? God puts that glow there and it doesn't go away. Now, having, having that heavenly go does not mean that you're exempt from difficulties now. But you're already a citizen of heaven, even though you're left here on earth until it's your time. I like how the New Testament says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to being in that perfect place and later on a perfect new earth and a new body. But right now, our citizenship is a dual citizenship because we're living in two realms at the same time. We're also here on earth. And we have to go in and wade in and, 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 and live in families where not everybody loves Jesus, and in neighborhoods where not everybody loves Jesus, and in workplaces, and in schools where not everybody loves Jesus. And so we're in the world, we're not of the world, we're ambassadors, we're trying to reflect what's true of our real home here on our temp in our temporary home. And so Solomon immediately after that amazing verse one turns to the person of faith having to live under a king's authority. And he gives us some principles here that help us so we can keep glowing and growing, not growling and scowling, right? And so verses two through nine, living under earthly authority. And he immediately goes into uh, what it's like to have to live under a king's authority when the king's not a very good king. And we're extending that to all authority because in life, God puts us in relationships where sometimes we are the authority figure, sometimes. You've been the one under authority, sometimes the one you're over authority. I've been a child under my parents' authority. I've been a parent, the authority over my children. I've been a player under a coach's authority. I have been a coach, the authority over players. I've been a student under teachers. They're the authority. I've been a teacher over students. I've been a church member. I am a pastor. And in all of life, we have these spheres of authority and relationships. And sometimes we're under authority. Sometimes we got peer relationships with people under authority. We're all under God's ultimate authority. And sometimes we're the ones under authority. And, you know, I love how Adrian Rogers said it. You know, you'll never be over what God wants you over until you're under what God wants you under. And so the worst leaders are those who have never followed well. And so we want leaders who have followed well. But when you get to kings, and especially in those days, all these thousands of years ago, Solomon's writing in day, in days where the king could be uh, just cruel and capricious and just to make terrible decisions. Uh, I'm not even sure I know what capricious means. What does that mean? Anyway, they could be cruel. They could be hurtful. They could be random in their choices and things. And so that's hard to follow. But in verses 2 through 9, he gives advice on living under earthly authority. And let's use the word guidance because this is the word of God. Solomon gives guidance to living under earthly authority. In verse 2, he's going to teach us that the believer's default mode is to obey earthly authorities. So you've got the glow on your face, and then you've got to go back out in the world. Verse 2, I say to those glowing, keep the king's command because of God's oath... To him. What does Solomon mean by that? God made the king the king. That was God's oath with the king. And he made you the subject of the king. Turn to Romans 13. Let's see how Paul says this years and years later. Romans 13, toward the middle of the New Testament. Romans 13, going to put up verses 1 and 2. Well, actually, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, you might want to read the rest of chapter 13 later of Romans. Great stuff from Paul there. But he makes the same point Solomon does. God has put the ruler in authority, and our default mode is to obey earthly authorities. Now, there may come a time when a king or any of your earthly authorities will ask you to directly to do something God says to don't do. And in that case, we've got to be like the apostles who looked at the rulers of their time and said, we must obey God rather than men. You're asking us to do something we cannot do because of our faith. We want to obey you as good citizens, as uh, children with parents, but we, uh, or, or as players with coaches or those things. But there comes a time where you may be asked to do something you cannot do and you've got to find the most respectful way to say, no, because of my faith in God, I cannot do that. But our default mode, according to this verses here, is to obey earthly authorities. And Romans 13 says that too. Many professing Christians spend vast amounts of their time being stubborn followers <laughs> who give their leaders headache. Have you ever seen that happen? Man, why are they giving the uh, leader such a hard time? Hebrews 13, 17 says it like this. This is in the context of church, but it applies to other relationships too. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. It'd be of no advantage to you. Why? Because if the leader's rolling their eyes and looking away every time they see you. Because they don't know if you're going to hit them in the face with a proverbial frying pan. Uh, it's not to your advantage to have them minister to you in a joyless way. Or to lead you in a joyless way. And so you're doing everything you can to help it be a better situation. So, kids, don't bring your parents unnecessary grief. Students and players, don't bring your teachers and coaches unnecessary grief. Workers, don't bring your bosses unnecessary grief. Church members, don't bring your pastors unnecessary grief. And citizens, don't bring the authorities unnecessary grief. And so, he starts this section here by speaking directly of our default mode being to obey earthly authorities. Well, then verses 3 through 5, the believer needs to choose his battles. He's given us guidance here as we live uh, under bad authorities. The believer needs to choose his battles with authority wisely. Look at verse 3. Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. What's that mean? (laughs) You know what it means. Don't be too quick to quit when you disagree with an authority figure. Don't be hasty to go from his presence. Why would you go from his presence? You're quitting. I ain't doing that. And you throw down and go. It's the child throwing the tantrum. It's the uh, player, uh, teach, uh, student storming out of the class. The uh, player that uh, walks off the field and whatever. I hope, Coach, uh, you haven't had to deal with some of that this week. It, <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, so this is appropriate for leaders and for those they lead. But uh, uh, look again at verse 3. The next thing he says is, Do not take your stand in an evil cause. Well, what's that mean? Don't join a rebellion against the authority figure. Do you see that there? Don't take your stand at an evil cause. Now, again, we're not talking about issues of biblical faithfulness, but so much more comes in when we're following a leader. Sometimes it is a difference of personality or a style of management, or we just don't like them for some reason. We don't click, or we've had past experiences with them. Then they became the leader, and and we don't understand that, and it's hard to do. The last part of that verse says, for the king does whatever he pleases. Solomon's saying, he's in charge, not you. Don't be too quick to join a rebellion. I think about this story that's developing at the Women's World Cup over there in Australia. Uh, Before the World Cup, the country of Spain had 15 players. In Spanish, you say, quince is 15, right? And the quince decided they didn't like the coach. And they said to the federation, we're not going to play for that coach. And they did this about the time the World Cup was getting ready to kick kick off and stuff like that. And the Spanish federation said, okay, you don't have to play for the coach. And I don't know what the 15 thought they were going to accomplish by saying, we won't play for that coach. But the federation said, that's not the way life works. So none of you are going to play on the team. And so a dramatically younger team for Spain wound up going to the World Cup. And that's a hard way to start out your World Cup experience, isn't it? Guess what, Spain, those younger players and their coach have gelled together and, they're, uh, and they've gone further than Spain has ever gone. They're in the semifinals of the thing, may win the thing, don't know if they will or not. But what a great illustration of not being too quick to take your stand in an evil cause uh, and, and uh, challenge the authority of the leader. Um, look at verse 4. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? What does that mean? And these are all conclusions you guys can come to too. I just had the time to meditate on it this week. What's that mean? Don't second guess everything the authority figure does. In our day, it's tough to lead anything man I've been a pastor I've been a teacher I've been a coach I've been a board member I've been this I've been that a lots of different chances to exercise leadership uh, things in different contexts and stuff and I can tell you it's not dramatically different having to uh, lead a church as it is having to lead a team or coach or teach a class some of the same anti-authority things are in the air and in the nation you know and in the world Uh, We know who was the ultimate rebellion against authority, right? Satan, right? Rebelled against God's authority. Then he got Adam and Eve to do it. And so it's something about being a sinful human is uh, being wise in our own eyes and full of pride instead of humility. And everybody thinks they can do better. And so if you're a teacher, man, I can relate to you and I pray for you as you lead that class. If you're a principal or a coach, I can relate to you as you do that. If you are a pastor that later watches this, you know I've seen that from that context as well. Um, and we see it in the way people just second guess those who organize and lead events. Well, it would have been better if they'd done such and such or such and such. They really ought to have done this. It would have been so much better if they'd done that. If only I was in charge. And people that never really ever want to be in charge are the ones saying things about uh, decisions, because then you come to them and say, "Well, gosh, help us organize the next one." Oh no, don't want to do that, you know. <laughs> um, and so, don't second guess everything the authority figure does. The cumulative impact of all that second-guessing is frustrated leaders dealing with people who have impossible expectations. Solomon has a better way to go. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Presumably the proper time and just way to say what needs to be said to the authority figure, uh, the king hoping for that chance just like Esther so beautifully orchestrated when she went in uh, to the king to talk about what the evil plot that was afoot to kill Jews and how she had so many people praying for her I think about Nehemiah going into the king he's heartbroken about what needs to happen back in Jerusalem he wants to take months off work so he can go and be part of doing what needs to happen in Jerusalem and he so skillfully Prayerfully and carefully approaches the king, and the king winds up being a great ally in sending Nehemiah forth. So, what does that mean? Verse five: Do carefully and prayerfully choose the time and way to speak and to act. Instead of quitting and questioning and joining rebellion, Solomon advises carefully and prayerfully considering how best to speak and act to do your part in making things better. So do carefully and prayerfully choose the time and way to speak and act. And that leads to verses 6 through 9 in this little mini section here, verses 2 through 9. The believer needs to add value even when he or she is frustrated. To add value even when he or she is frustrated. Look at verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him what's that mean the, the trouble lies heavy on you I, I've got to get this resolved or I can't stay in this organization I can't stay uh, under this leader I've got to get it resolved it's heavy on me but Solomon advises oh wait, wait wait there's a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him look at verse 8 no man has power to retain the spirit of power over the day of death There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. It talks about some of the realities that are coming, death and taxes, and you can't determine the day of your death and those things. But in the second part of verse 8 there, it's never appropriate for a believer to do wrong things to achieve what they think needs to happen. And so even if you wind up leaving or quitting or moving on to the next thing, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. After prayer and consideration, you may need to part company with bad authority figures, but remember that you are, and we talk about 5G living, that in everything you do, you want to give glory to God. You want to do it for the glory of God. You want to do it for the good of your fellow man. You've got a role to play in, in, in doing good things for all the world. You want to do everything you do to get the gospel to non believers, even those you're going to part ways from in a company or something, and you're going to talk about things too. Uh, if you're under their authority and you've got do everything you do to get for the growth of your fellow believers. Other believers are watching how you do things and you want to do it all with a grateful heart. And as you do and as people are watching that, then you'll wind up adding value even when you may have to uh, move on. And there is a right way to do that. And Solomon talks about it here. And Aren't we at a place here where we go, how in the world can the glow still be on your face when you're having to deal with difficult things? Well, that's the advice Solomon's giving. The glow comes from God, your time with him. Nobody can take that away, and yet you're going to be in these situations that are going to try you in so many different ways. Here's some advice for those considering making a change. Make sure you add value to your organization and leader until God leads you to the next place. Some people are so done before they're done that all they do is sabotage the work from that time on. And you want to continue to uh, represent Christ and represent your family name and all the good things that you're to represent, even while you may have your resume out somewhere else and going to another place. When I say add value, have you heard that phrase before? Business leaders use it, and I think it's just, just a wonderful phrase, that you're here to help this organization, And you know what a lot of people under authority never, ever take the time to consider, but you ought to take the time to consider it? I know what I want to accomplish in life and with my family. I wonder what the boss wants to accomplish in life. I wonder what the goals that he has to meet is or that she has to meet are. I wonder, even as I'm trying to to, to make this a better place, I wonder how I can help them achieve what they think needs to happen for the organization. We get so, in, in such tunnel vision, all we think about ourselves and whether what they're doing helps us or not. Well, turn it around. Is what I'm doing helping them, and do I even understand what they need to accomplish based on what their boss expects and their boss expects. Ultimately, there's a king in this passage, but sometimes your authority has an authority, and guess what? Every authority has an authority, right? Because God's the ultimate authority. That's even true in marriage. Before it ever talks about wives graciously submitting to their husband's leadership, Ephesians 5.20 says, submit to one another in the reverence of Christ, under the reverence of Christ. So we're mutually submitted to one another because we both got a higher authority. And then when the two have a tie that needs breaking, the husband winds up being the leader. And that can be very uh, difficult days when you know usually you're on the same page, but when you're not, the decision has to be made. And that's when the husband's captaincy of the team, so to speak, comes into play. But add value until God leads you to the next place. Make sure you finish your time there in a godly manner. Try to set them up for success after you leave Don't burn bridges you might need to cross over again because life is a series of temporary assignments and sometimes your paths may cross again. You may need to work together again and don't have a whole bunch of junk from the past that you are still dredging up and bringing up, you know, forward with the Lord. I want to show you an example of this uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 10. So turn there. So from Ecclesiastes, go back to... Past Chronicles, past Kings to 1 Samuel. This is when Saul became king. And we know Saul, at the end of the day, wasn't a very good king. Now, he did some good things. But we're going all the way back to when King Saul first became Saul, <laughs> Saul the king, and different reactions. And so, it's really funny because when Solomon anointed Saul, or told you that, told them that's the king. They said, where's the king? And even though he was seven foot tall, where was he? He was hiding underneath some of the baggage. He was afraid to death to become the king of Israel and all that different stuff. That's between verses 20 and 24. But look at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And check this out. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. He was scared to take the position up anyway. Do you see the two reactions there? God's word says that everybody saw that Saul was afraid of the assignment. He was shaking his boots. How is he going to lead when he's so almost petrified here? and it says some men of valor said he's gonna need our help he's gonna need what we can bring he's gonna need how we can help Israel not only survive but thrive during this age that we're in and God called them valiant men are you a valiant man are you a valiant woman whatever the organization is that you wind up being a part of and you got a leader there are you that kind of citizen for the area and the country? Are you that kind of church goer, a church member for your church? Are you that kind of player for your coach? Are you that kind of student for your teacher? Are you that kind of worker for your boss? Are you like those other ones there, the worthless ones? That, I can't work for that guy. You don't know what he's doing, and the scripture calls them worthless in all that needed to happen for Israel in that day. Now we're talking about dealing with such things that might make the glow on your face dim from verse 1 a little and Psalm's next words bring it back to that reality big time. So in verses 10 to 13 let's talk about eternal life to come, verse 10. I saw some wicked people buried, and people praised them and forgot the wicked things they did. Such vanity. And and Solomon's already gone into this reality, you know, that not everything on earth makes sense because it just doesn't seem to be where righteous are rewarded and wicked are judged and those type things. Sometimes we see it happen, but other times it just doesn't seem to make sense. And in verse 11, Solomon says, Because people that do wicked things aren't instantly judged... It makes other people think they can get away with wicked things. But Solomon wants those listening to him not to believe that for a second. He lays down the truth in verses 12 and 13 and does it in such awesomely poetic language. Look at it again there. Those sinners never stop doing wicked things and seem to get away with it for years and years down here. Do you see it there? It will not go well with the wicked when judgment day comes. They experience temporary and fleeting pleasures and gain while they lived, but they'll be judged and spend eternity in hell. So it will not go well with the wicked. Now, Solomon has just taught that in this life, sometimes it appears to go well with the wicked. So what's he doing? In the Old Testament, he's talking about the life to come, the life after this life. And he says as he does at the end of the book that God will judge everything and so you want to fear him you want to be right with him at the end of the day he's saying after judgment and there's eternity with God or eternity away from God it will not go well with the wicked and so You pray, of course, I hope you pray, for that wicked person that you interact with in some bad leadership capacity or whatever. You pray for them to get saved, don't you? I hope you do. We as Christians are called to pray for those to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But we also know they're not going to get away with that at the end of the day. They look like they're getting away with it now, but not after God's done. God will have the last word because God always has the last word. And you need to be able to know that deep in your soul so you don't say, you know what? They're getting away with it. I need to jump in with them. Maybe they're right. Maybe this life is all there is. Maybe I need to go ahead and enter into frivolous and sinful and carnal ways now because you never know at the end of the day. And I I hope God will forgive me. But if I miss out now, I might miss out. Don't you think like that? It will not go well with the wicked. I hope you hear that at 3 a.m. this week. I hope at 3 a.m. you wake up and go, it will not go well with the wicked. (laughs) What was I thinking earlier today when I had a wicked thought? No, repent of those things. Seek God, right? Because what's the opposite? I I inverted them, didn't it? You know, dyslexic people do that. (laughs) But verse 12, yet I know. Say yet I know. It will be well with those who fear before God. It will go well. It will not go well with the wicked. It will go well in eternity for those who revere God and try to do what he says. I hope you think about that at 9 a.m. when you're in the workplace and you've got this glow on your face because you spent time with Jesus and you heard a great message at church this past weekend. But then you get out there in the day and the things happen, and the boss is asking you something, you go, Oh, why doesn't he do it this way? It'd be so much- Oh, I don't want to second guess everything. Lord, take care of what you need to help me to add value. It will go well with the righteous. It will go well. But it will not go well with the wicked. He's talking about the life to come after this life. I want to show you this. Turn to Psalm 37. I'm going to show you something now that some of you have heard me say. I don't think I've said it on a Sunday morning. But if I had, it's time to say it again. One of the great questions we have when we're reading in the Old Testament is how come they don't talk about heaven? How come they don't talk so much about after this life getting to be in heaven with God? Instead they talk, you know what they talk about? They talk about inheriting the earth. They're talking about being in a body one day on earth rather than the cloud type thing. And sometimes people think, well, so talking about heaven, that's New Testament language, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But back in those underdeveloped days, they didn't understand that. No, don't, don't, don't believe that, that, that kind of a thing there. They're not, in the Old Testament, taught to look forward to the time in heaven that itself is temporary. You know what they look forward to? The Revelation 21 and 22 reality of being on a new earth with the Lord. Forever, and the wicked will not be there. How do I know that? Psalm 37. And other Psalms do it too. But let's just read through 7 through 13. Look at the different ways it says it here. You might want to read all Psalm 37 later. Be still before the Lord, saints. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers will be cut off but those who wait for the Lord shall what? Inherit the land, inherit the earth. In just a little while the wicked will be no more though you look carefully at his place, he won't be there. But the meek shall what? Inherit the land, inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. It will not be well with those who reject Christ and never turn to him. But it will be well with the wicked. They will inherit the earth. The wicked won't be there to have wicked ways. God will be there with his people. That's what Job had in mind when he says, after this body that's crumbling is destroyed, I know in my flesh I will see God standing on the earth and how I yearn to do that. That was Jewish expectation. And that's the final reality Revelation gives us. Not on clouds with a harp, but on earth, doing all the best things of the new earth without the realities of sin that these sinful bodies give us now. Isn't that awesome? woo And because of that, because we're living in two realms, we've got the frustrating things of day-to-day, but we've got this glow, and we've got this reality that it will go well with the righteous. He's got a, just a couple more comments for us here. The final section is living with present joy, verses 14 through 17. One thing Solomon's made clear is that we're not just to wait for that glorious future with God. Within the boundaries he sets, we're to experience his presence and joy now. Look at verse 15. He said, I commend joy. Say, I commend joy. I commend joy, you guys. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God's given him. Now listen. Does this sound like anything Solomon has said before? We're eight chapters in. This is the fourth time he stops and says, Now listen, in the midst of all this frustration, where everything seems so temporary, frustrating, and fleeting, let me tell you what. You can enjoy the life God's given you. You can eat, drink, and be joyful and thankful that God's given you a job. You've got work product that's helping the world. All those 5G realities. He says it in chapter 2. He says it in chapter 3. He says it in chapter 5. And now he says it again here in chapter 8. And you know what? He means it. He means it. He, you, you don't have to endure life and then die. You know a song I both love and hate at the same time? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You know what I want to shout out every time there? And I want to! There's opportunities for me today and tomorrow. I'm not just surviving, I'm trying to thrive. I want abundant life now. Now I know it's going to be hard, it's going to be frustrating, so I love the song also. Because it's his presence, it's his power with us. But don't you just live defeated and say, oh, it really stinks, but one day it'll go well with with righteous, you know. He says, Solomon four times has said in the midst of this frustrating experience, think about eternal things, that will help get you through. But you've got a growing relationship with God, and it is to be experienced now. I commend joy now. And if you haven't figured that out yet, you'll always be chasing your tail. Let me tell you how some of you live you live from circumstance to circumstance hoping that one day bad circumstances will stop and then you're going to bust out in the joy. And that day's not going to come. The great evangelist Ron Dunn said it so well. Good and evil run on parallel tracks and they usually arrive at the same time. If you're waiting for things to get better, circumstances change before you bust out the joy, it's not going to come. But because of what God has done for you eternally... You can experience joy now because guess what? For you, eternal life began the moment you received Jesus. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Jesus defined it for us. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. These are difficult days, you guys. And religious checklists aren't sufficient to help make you through. They're just not. But a growing relationship with Jesus will empower you just as it did the saints of old. That's why Hebrews 11 says, by faith, by faith, by faith, this saint did this, this saint did that. And by faith, you'll do what God calls you to this week. The same God who saved you back there, you're grateful for, is active in your life now. And what he's got for you is better. Say it's better. It's better. And it will go well with the righteous later. But right now, I commend joy to you to experience this growing relationship now that makes all the difference. Our Jewish friends, they have the same Old Testament books as we have in our 39 Old Testament books. They numbered them 24, and another time we'll talk about why. It's the same books. But interestingly, our Bible has Ecclesiastes with the poetic books, the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon. The Jewish Old Testament divides the uh, Old Testament books up into Torah, the first five books, the Law, the Nevi'im, the Prophets, and then the Ketuvim, the Writings. And Ecclesiastes is placed in the Jewish Ketuvim, the Writings, and then it's subclassified with five Megalot scrolls read during feasts. So during the Jewish feast, they read a different scroll. Ecclesiastes, it's read during the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles? Israel was remembering how they had to live in tents when they came up out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. And so one of the festivals God gave them to observe so they would remember where they came from and where they got to and ultimately where they were going when they'd inherit the earth was the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they would come to Jerusalem, they'd set up tents. It'd be a camping trip, you guys. The whole nation would come and camp around Jerusalem. But it was to remind them That they were temporary residents, not yet experiencing all that God had for them. And when they needed a book to read at that festival, which one did they choose? Ecclesiastes. Because there's a lot about life that's vanity and hard and temporary. Sometimes it's like a camping trip. As we deal with all the different things that aren't quite structured and walls and a great place for us to be. Sometimes we're between places. Every year Ecclesiastes is read as a reminder that's there's much about this world that's sinfully off. But those who revere God can experience God's presence and joy with them now even as they anticipate that the best is yet to come. One day we won't need the tents anymore will be in permanent housing with God and that brings us back to the Christmas party where there were two recitations of Psalm 23 one by the actor Charles Lawton and the other by an elderly aunt remember Lawton's received a standing ovation everybody clapped they loved it but the other from the elderly lady moved people to tears remember how the family member asked Lawton and said "Uh, hey um, how do you account for the dramatic difference between the two recitations the way they were received Well, Lawton looked at the young family member and said, I know the psalm, but she knows the shepherd. Bow
0: your heads, please. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today.